About 500 years ago, the church wrestled with what was most important and most true about the gospel and the word of God and Christian practices and even the ministry of the church. We call this the Protestant Reformation. And when this happened, they wanted to figure out, are we being faithful to what God has commanded us in his word? Are we following that as we should? And about a hundred years after that, at least as it's recorded, a saying became commonly used, a slogan, Semper Reformata. It's Latin. Back in those days, Latin was the educated language, and so a lot of writings, even if they spoke French or German, they would write them in Latin for the educated classes. That's the way it was done. It's like speaking in these and thous, as we all used to do. Semper Reformata simply means always reforming. The guy that kind of, at least as history tells it, the guy that made that slogan most popular was a guy by the name of, named of Jodicus van Lodenstein. He's not, Jodicus is not in the top 100 boy names, last I checked. Jodicus van Lodenstein, this is what he said in one of his books in 1674. He said, the church is always in need to reform itself to the word of God. There's that statement. There's, there, there's a summary of that slogan, semper, always reformata, always reforming. We've got to lock in to the word of God and not be moved and swayed by trends or shifting ground, but lock in. I remember when we took our kids on a trip when they were younger. We went to this airport that had those little trams that would go from terminal to terminal. You'd go from terminal A to terminal B, and it would kind of kick off really, really strong and stop really, really fast. And Laura and I grab on to what you're supposed to grab and forgot to mention to these two little boys, hey, grab the pole. And, you know, boys are falling, and we're grabbing them wherever we can. And finally said, hey, hey, boys, see this pole? Hold that. And they would hold that, and we go from terminal B to terminal C, boom, their shoulders are going back, but they're not moving at all. In fact, between C and D, I think my younger son was spinning in a circle, trying to, hey, 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 don't be hitting people. But immediately, they weren't flopping all over. And you look around, and everybody knows that you grab onto something stable and rooted, and no matter what the shifting is, whether going or stopping, you're planted. That's Semperi Formata. That's always reforming, not in the sense of always progressing or developing, but always staying rooted and grounded, being planted, holding what is stable and solid so that when everything moves around you, you're locked in. Well, I want to talk to you this week and next about some wrestling we're doing, Semper Reformata, in regard to the Lord's Supper. No doctrinal change or anything like that at all, but just really more explanation. And before I get into the details, which I'll cover next week, about explaining all the nuances of the Lord's Supper, I want to set a little bit of the context for our own church tradition. In a sense, before I explain the poll, I want to let you know that the tram is going to stop, start, and stop fast and stop hard, and we've been in the middle of that. And I want to give some context. So I want to do a little mini-series before we jump into 1 Samuel in a couple weeks on the Lord's Supper and the 
message I'm going to give today is simply called From the Supper to the Song. And it's a little bit of story explaining where we've come from and, and where we're at. And I want to give a little bit of context on that as I try to explain the importance of the Lord's Supper for us. But before we jump in, let me, let me just pray. Ask the Lord to minister to us this morning. Father, speak through your word as you have promised. And we open your word to hear from it. Help us to have it be a light and a lamp unto our path so we can walk the Christian walk rightly. So minister to us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's just a big, big overview. And here are these two words that Vera warned our kids about, but these are good words. They're old words, they're church words, but they're good words. The Lord Jesus gave his church two ordinances or sacraments. Now, I, I say both of those because different traditions use different ones. Ordinance just comes from the word ordained, like God gave it, like, i.e., it's commanded. Sacrament just comes from the word meaning it's sacred. So ordinance emphasizes that God gave it and commanded it. Sacrament emphasizes that God does something with it. But either way, those are generally synonymous terms, even if Christian, different Christian traditions pick and choose and use those in different way. The Lord Jesus gave his church two ordinances or sacraments to do this. Here's a great summary of it in five words. To sign and seal his love to us. That's what they do. Now, I'll have to spend more time next week to flesh out exactly how they do that, specifically the Lord's Supper. But that's a good thing for you to know, that God ordained these and made these sacred because through them, he signs and seals. He signifies, makes manifest, and seals by his spirit, the work of his spirit, the very love of God through Christ in us. That's a lot. That's loaded. Besides preaching, therefore, which God promises to work through, Ephesians 2, 17 makes this clear, these two ordinances or sacraments are formal procedures, even probably better to say ceremonies, that Christ established and that Scripture throughout explains that provides initiation and spiritual continuation for God's people. Okay, that's, that's big picture. That's us flying 30,000 feet over a landscape and kind of looking down. L let me explain these two ordinances for us. The first is baptism. Baptism is an initiation ceremony. That's what it is. It provides initiation into the church. It doesn't save you. Jesus alone saves. But it's the formal ceremony through which God signs and seals the work that he's done in you through Christ and by the Spirit. It functions as a tangible expression of conversion, what God has done in you personally, and corporate identification with the church, that you now become a part of the body of Christ, gathered as we are right now. A good analogy for baptism is a marriage ceremony. It's not like the ceremony happens and the people have never met. Hey, are you wearing white? I'm wearing black. There's a church right here. Like clearly there's a relationship. There's already a commitment. There's already love and affection. So then those people have a formal ceremony announced well in advance that's rooted in this relationship that may have gone on for years of a formal covenantal commitment. 
Again, that fits really, really well the language of the text that Jeff just read. And baptism signifies that for the Christian. It's a sign and seal of what God has done in a person and their participation and being joined together as part of the family of God. The Lord's Supper then, the second ordinance or sacrament, provides continuing fellowship with both God and the church. In fact, it has a vertical and a horizontal dimension, almost like the cross. It's a tangible means by which grace is shared with the believer from God, that's vertical, and shared among believers, that's horizontal. So so there's that two dimension. It's a literally a conduit through which by the Spirit, and here's where we get into a bit of the mystery, but a bit of the biblical descriptions that we'll cover more thoroughly next week, how God ministers to his children. And he ministers vertically where he signs and seals this continuing relationship you have in the new covenant through Christ, but he also expects that to be a conduit where God's vertical grace given to you is not found a cul-de-sac in your personal parking lot, but then extends itself to other people, which is why in the same text that Jeff just read, if we were to go a few verses later, he'd be like, hey, if you got a problem with your brother and sister, hey, unblock the road because the truck of God's grace is going to drive through it, and there should be grace horizontally communicated between brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, the analogy using that covenant of marriage as an analogy, if baptism is the wedding ceremony, then many aspects of intimacy and fellowship and renewal and life and joy together that a married couple would have is an analogy of the Lord's Supper and the role that it plays in the life of the Christian. What makes these ordinances sacred is that they are places where God has promised, hear this, where God has promised to meet us, to minister to us, and to be present with us. Let me say that again. What makes these sacred is that more than other things, more than just a Bible study with friends at a Panera, more than than just a, a devotional book you might read, more than a song on the radio that you might listen to, that these particular events, by the very work of God through His Spirit, are places where God has promised to meet us, minister to us, and be present with us. For baptism, it's where John 1, explains this, where Jesus is the true baptizer, who whether he, whatever pastor or minister is participating in the service is ultimately Christ who baptized. And even our text today ultimately is Christ who is the host of the supper. Look, look at the words that Jeff read for us in Corinthians 11. Notice how it starts. For I received from the Lord, Paul says, what I delivered to you. And we we might just blow right past that, seeing it as mere introduction. But did you just hear what he said? I received it from the Lord. Like if if, if you're like a lieutenant and, and somebody says, I've got word from the general. Like you're probably like, who cares? You don't say that. He's like, let's, we better hear what the general has to say. So I'm giving you what I got from the general. Let's read it. It's a big deal. For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, notice how many times Lord is used, by the way. This is king language. 
sovereignty, rule. This is part of his command. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given it, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. See that, see that phrase, given thanks? There's lots of different names for the Lord's Supper. You've even heard two of them used today, communion or Lord's Supper, right? All of those are true. You even hear one called the Eucharist. So guess what? That, the Greek verb, here we go. This is totally for all the kids. They're going to love this. The Greek verb, forgive thanks, here I'll say it, Eucharisto. Does that sound like Eucharist to you? It's exactly what it is. So some people call the supper the Eucharist, literally just transliterating that Greek verb. It's a, it's a giving of thanks. Some say communion because it is a good word that describes our communion with God, our communion with one another, and others just call it the Lord's Supper because in that sense, it's the supper that God uses to minister to his children and Christ is the host of the supper. All of those can function synonymously. But notice that Jesus specifically takes the bread. He hasn't even gotten to the cup yet. He describes the relation to his body, and then he gives the phrase, do. He doesn't say, when you, you know, he doesn't say, if you want to do this. He doesn't make it like an option. That's command, that's an imperative. Do this in remembrance of me. Second part, the cup. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, notice how he explains it, this cup is the new covenant. There's that word in my blood, and here's that phrase again, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So even that last line gives us a glimpse of something important regarding Lord's Supper. It is clearly looking backwards, remembrance is used. It's clearly a present reality that, is, that we're participating in, but it also has a forward look. Like it's, it's like in that moment, the God outside of time is ministering to his children, whatever situation they are in, in a way that nourishes them spiritually. So what makes these ordinances sacred, what makes the Lord's Supper, to be specific, sacred, it is, is the place where God has promised to meet us, to minister to us, and to be present with us. It means that the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. Now these are a bit mysterious. How does it work? Am I supposed to feel different? Is it, what is it doing to me? I'll get to that. They're not magic. And they don't work outside of faith in Christ. This is for God's children. But the Bible uses very strong language to describe what they do. Regarding baptism, for example, Paul says in Romans 6, 4, that water baptism unites us to Christ in his death. It unites us to Christ in his death. Even the, the, the ceremony symbolizes this, right? Where we're below the level of the water and above, sharing in his death and resurrection. That uniting is... The mystery, how does God do that by the Spirit? How is that a conduit? How about the Lord's Supper? 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, elsewhere in this text, 
The Lord's Supper produces intimacy with Jesus and real communion with Jesus. Now, some traditions in the Christian faith, the Roman Catholic in particular, have actually taken such language and, and made it become a salvific act, as if the baptism is saving you, or the Lord's Supper is saving you, and the reformers long ago, semper reformata, were right to say no. The only one or thing that can save you is Jesus Christ. So rather than saving us, the ordinances secure us to God. Remember that, that sign and seal language? And they satisfy us spiritually. Our own statement of faith that is part of our denomination, the EFCA, Evangelical Free Church of America, literally uses the word regarding the Lord's Supper is that it nourishes us. That's a good word. Now we need to explain the how more fully next week. But I want to talk about a why before then. I want to do some deconstruction because what's happened actually is that the ordinances or sacraments have been minimized by Christians and really replaced with something else. And that's the second and last point I want to make this morning. Over the last century, the evangelical tradition within Protestant Christianity, it sounds like a lot of big words to say, our tradition in churches similar to our tradition, has lost the sacredness of the Lord's Supper and made worship music their primary sacrament. That's not just something that I want to argue or show you today, but something, to be fair, that Christians in our traditions have wrestled with and been discussing and thinking about for a good 10 to 20 years. Alongside the Word of God, the Lord's Supper should be one of the most significant sources of spiritual satisfaction and nourishment in the Christian's life. Like Jesus said it, I'm going to minister to you in a powerful way through my Word and the ordinances. Is that how most of us are fed? Like most of us are fed to the Word, fair enough and sure. But how significant in your own spiritual life are the ordinances? I think mo for most of us, it would, we would have to say they're not as significant as they certainly seem to be framed in the New Testament. It's not like you miss a communion Sunday and you're like, we have to remedy this. Like, I, I can't go another certain number of weeks without communion. I, I, I can't miss that. that that's, a, that's a significant way that Christ ministers his grace to me. When, when you look at statistics for why people choose a church, number one, 83% of people say in the top few reasons is the preacher, for good or for bad, right? The preaching of the word. Number two, 75% of people say worship music. Three out of four will choose a church by worship music. How many do you think would say style of communion? Not even on the list. Not even mentioned. Now let me compare that to the 16th century. In the 16th century, as the church was wrestling with 
the Semper Reformata, right? They, they, they looked at abuses in the church. They wanted to find, they're on the tram living through culture and they grab the word of God and they say, we're going to be grounded in this. And they define some things, right? They, they define justification, the doctrine of the church, doctrine of salvation, like those things they agreed upon. The main things were the main things. What did they disagree on? What did they split over? What did they choose churches over? The number one thing in the 16th century had nothing to do with organ or guitar or pews or chairs or how the kids' ministry was. Number one, Lord's Supper. After the Protestant Reformation, Protestant Christians split into different camps over differences of the Lord's Supper. There was a big meeting between Martin Luther, big bulky guy, my kind of guy, sitting at this table, guarantee he had a big pint with him. The guy always had a pint of beer somewhere. And then there was the more conservative Zwingli, probably drinking water. And they're sitting at this table and Zwingli, Erwick Zwingli and Martin Luther, and they're trying to figure out if they can come together on the Lord's Supper. And at the end of that, my quote, right, I'm from, I don't have it written down, Luther said something to the effect of, probably with verbose language, something to this. It is clear to me that we are interpreting the Bible regarding the Lord's Supper in very different ways. And Zwingli, fewer on words, says, amen for sure. And they could not worship. In fact, they could barely even be in the room, according to one biographer, without getting into a fistfight. Fast forward 21st century. What divides our churches now? Is it communion? What splits us into different groups? It's worship music. Not many Christians even understand their church's view of the Lord's Supper. We rarely have somebody come and say, you know what, we came to Hope Church for this specific reason, your view of the Lord's Supper. How many Christians in our own church even know our particular church's view of the Lord's Supper? Even though many Christians don't even understand their church's view of the Lord's Supper, they likely have very strong feelings about a church's worship music. Imagine a church having gifted, this would have been shocking to the Protestant reformers. So imagine this, tell, tell this to Luther, right? He'd probably throw his beer on you. But imagine this, we're going to have a church with two different services, with two different kinds of worship. He would have been shocked. Now, let me tell you this story. What if we had a church with two different services, with two different kinds of communion services? We're going to have a Luther communion service in the first hour, and our second service will be the Zwinglian. You might not even know what the difference would even be. You didn't even know it was a fight. You didn't know that that was the main debate going on for centuries with nothing to do with do we sing Psalms or Isaac Watts or Chris Tomlin now, but what role of communion play? Where did that go? How did we shift from the supper to the song? What does that teach us? It teaches us that in the hearts and practices of contemporary Christians, music worship has become a sacrament. It's what nourishes us and has actually shoved one of God's 
instruments that he assigned his instrument of grace out of the way. Went to a funeral for a dear brother yesterday, and one of the songs playing was Sandy Patty and Larnell Harris, starting out at the beginning, and I knew that song full well. Not because I'm the one that always chose it on the radio, but because my mom did. And even my wife sitting next to me leans over and says, boy, would your mom like this song right now? Fair enough. Now, I can imagine if my mom's three grandkids were sitting right there, not one of them would say, oh, I love Sandy Patty too. Larno Harris, give him to me all day long. But I remember full well sitting by my mom and my grandma at a Sandy Patty Larno Harris concert when I was just a boy and seeing them moved with emotion over these lovely singers and in particular that one song. And in many ways, that is probably what many of us now conceive of as the nourishment we get. It is the music. It stirs our emotions, that helps us commune with God in a way, and if we're not careful, even replaces God's instrument for sacrament or ordinance as a means of grace. What caused this? So if you've been part of our growth hours, you might be familiar with the term that we're living in a third world culture. And the short of that is, is we've lost transcendence, so meaning is no longer top down, Life is no longer assigned top down, but it's more imminence. It's within us. We can define ourselves. We are finding ourselves and we nourish ourselves. And it's often through an expressive individualism, an emotionalism that has dominated the last hundred years. And again, remember, we're, we're on that tram. You're with me with my small kids and the kids are being tossed around and nobody's telling them to grab a pole. No, no, nobody's rooting them. When you go from terminal A to terminal B, it doesn't matter how fast it starts. If you're holding a pole, you're good. If you're not holding a pole, you better not be leaning left. So the whole world shifted to this emotionalism, this lack of transcendence, this emphasis on the inner experiencing, finding me, and we brought that right into the church pews and baptized it. Other things did as well. One would be the pandemic of biblical illiteracy. We are one of the most biblically illiterate generations of Christians since the beginning of Christianity. Again, that's, that's not, I'm not taking data samples. That is literally now what people are arguing is that the last century has seen such a, such a drop in understanding of God's word and truth that it is not surprising that people don't even have an idea what the Lord's Supper is. And let me just say something, that's not just on you, that's on us. That's on your church leadership. That's on your pastors to teach this, which is very much the reason why we want to do this right now. That's on us, that's not on you. Another is the influence, and this, this, this explains why pastors maybe haven't done this, is that market-driven Christianity and that creating that big event and the existential experience. It's, that's how worship service turns into concerts and the darker room, which totally limits seeing your brother and sister and hugging them because they're going through a lot, but allows you just to focus on you and that internal me and your hands up and your eyes closed. And it's just like this individual experience is driven by pastors who have been failed to say, thus saith the Lord, and have tried to give you what you're looking for, which is what the culture has given you elsewhere. 
And finally, one historical suggestion is that the influence of Pentecostalism and some of its practices have had a huge impact on American evangelicalism. Now hear this, none of this is to deny a place for emotions and worship. God made you human. You're supposed to be emotional. I can barely go through a sermon most Sundays without getting a little teared up about something. I'm human. I'm supposed to be full of emotions. So are you. And you're made for worship. You are made to be a worshiper and to experience the reality of the goodness of God. Nor is this to, to, to remove singing from the church or even to say that singing is not commanded in Scripture. It sure is. In your notes, I give you a text from Hebrew 13, 15. Through him, that is through our relationship with Christ, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. And then, then the author of Hebrews even ex explains it. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So we just sing it. You are good. You are good when there's nothing good in me. That is us confessing, God, you are great. You are worthy. We stop what we're doing on the first day of the week and we align our lives to you and we say, you are great because we've received the goodness of the gospel and he is worthy to be praised. But notice something significant in that verse. Hebrews 13, 15 says that we are offering up a sacrifice of praise. But what makes the power of God's word and the ordinance significant is that God has ordained those three things through which he comes down. You see that difference? Like worship is us lifting up and giving God praise. But in the word and in the ordinances, God comes down. He meets us where we are at. That those things serve as unique conduits of his grace that he empowers by his spirit. So that isn't to say we shouldn't be singing. We have to. We're human. We're worshipers. We're going to sing. But have we made worship the sacrament? Have we made it about what we're giving to God and not stopped and said, no, no, this is something he commanded so that regularly he would give to us? In essence, the fear is that we've sought to facilitate and administer the work of his spirit through other means. And next week I'll explain how God nourishes us through the Lord's Supper. Like I'll enter into that. I'll talk about that. But I want to end with five consequences of the church's shift from the supper to the song. Here they are. Number one, God's word is marginalized in many of our churches. They are shortchanging the time given to the word of God. Since worship gives that liver quiver, you know what I mean by that? Like worship gives you that liver quiver where you feel this connection to God. Then churches give you a lot of liver quiver and don't give you a lot of the word. More time is spent on creating an existential experience than a spirit-empowered encounter with the word of God. Second, our assurance is threatened. If we associate God's presence with a particular experience or emotion, what happens when we no longer feel it? We search for churches whose praise band, orchestra, pipe organ produces in us the feelings we are chasing. But the reality of God in our lives depends not on subjective experiences, 
but on the mediation of Christ. Third, music is given a priestly role. When music is seen as a means to encounter God, worship leaders and music itself is vested with a priestly role. They become the ones that bring us into God's presence. No, nobody can bring you into God's presence except one person. His name is Jesus. Here's a church advert from not long ago and not far from here. Join us for inspiring worship where you can meet God and receive the energy and love you need. Notice how it's like it's selling you something. It's like you're a consumer. How about this? Our worship events put you in touch with the power and love of God. That has made worship a sacrament. Fourth, the shift from the supper to the song has caused division to be increased. If we identify a feeling as an encounter with God, and only a then only a particular kind of music produces that feeling, then we will insist that the same music be played regularly in our church gatherings. And it feels biblical to us because that's how we're nourished. And if you're not nourishing me, then you're failing as a church. As long as everyone shares the same tastes, uh, no problem. But if not, division in our service or churches becomes the norm. In fact, offering different services based on musical preference not only sanctions division, but even approves self-centeredness among the people of God. Probably none of my three kids, no offense to my mom, would choose to listen to Sandy Patty and Larno Harris. Can you imagine if they never sat in service with their grandma? But now we have the common with our market-driven churches where you can have whatever flavor you want. You can go to the classic or you can go to the contemporary. Which one would Jesus have chosen? Like imagine them standing in the lobby and like, I don't know where to go. I, I want to sit with these brothers and sisters, but I did say at one point, let the little children come to me. Which service does Jesus go to? Does he alternate every week? How about this? There's a church in Southern California. I never went to the church there on a Sunday morning service, but I was there for a conference. Big mega church, thousands of people. They have six different venues and they, they, they change the room. So there's 40 different kinds of services between Saturday and Sunday. I mean, we're talking from the organ, pipe-led, hymns only, to the, the traditional contemporary service, to here's two versions. They got the country version, where you literally sit on hay bales. I checked that room out. I saw it. It was a rows of hay bales. So it's kind of like country pews, I guess, right? But you got all hay bales, and the whole side was a wall of a big red barn, and there was even pictures of cows and goats. Or you've got the goth service where it's total heavy metal, it's God is amazing, I mean, just, like imagine that God is amazing, like which one is Jesus gonna go to? Can you imagine this? Like there it is, I got, like, what, would, what would Lutheran Zwingli say? Hey, 
Let's just meet in the middle, man. We'll follow Zwingli. I don't know what to do with this. Like, what do we do with this? Finally, and here's the last, and maybe the hardest to understand because it's the most biblically rooted in what we'll have to get to next week. And here it is. When we shift from the supper to the song, the ministry of Christ to us through the spirit is either hindered or forsaken. Because we now think that we can facilitate you connecting with God when in reality, <laughs> hey, that's not our job. That's Christ's job. And what the church does is takes Christ and he presents him to the people and he lets the spirit do the work. And Christ says it's going to happen in three ways. Through the proclamation of God's words and through the ordinance or sacraments of baptism and Lord's Supper. Who actually empowers the ministry of the church among God's people? Christ, the senior pastor through his Holy Spirit. We are not only foolish when we try to manufacture ministry power through human means, but that's just foolish. But we are also foolish if we fail to provide God's people with the true power of God. Give them Christ, which is stumbling block to the Jews and foolish to the Gentiles, but is the power of God. We may not even be able to see how fully or fully understand how the Spirit works. But we trust that what God has said, do this, we should take it seriously. We feel as staff, but before that even elders, that we need to take the Lord's Supper more seriously. That's all. No big, no big change. No, no progression. It's rootedness. Remember that Van Lodenstein guy? Semper Reformata. What did he say in 1674? The church is always in need to reform itself to the word of God. Let us not be a church that's afraid to do that. So next week, Lord willing, you come back. There will be no goth worship band. Don't expect it. Next week, when we gather again as God's people, I'll explain how the Lord's Supper is meant to work and nourish God's children, and how we as a church want to take that a bit more seriously. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the way that you minister to your children. Help us, Father, to receive the ministry of Christ through the Spirit, to not rely on our own strengths and our own talents and our own power, but to rely on you. Help this church to give Christ and Christ alone and Christ crucified, which looks like foolishness, which lacks the charisma of Hollywood and the reality of our culture, but is the true power of God. And help us see how all along you have assigned this to be in that sacred supper. Father, thank you that you are always reforming your church and you're doing it by your spirit guiding your people to your truth. Help us to be that kind of a church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.